if you would take your Bibles, we are going. To, our key passage is going to be in Exodus 34, but we're going to um, be in a few other places before we end up getting there. Have you heard this this phrase um, to know something like the back of your hand? Have you heard that? You know, I know this town like the back of my hand. What does that even mean, right? I mean, how well do you know the back of your hand? It's supposed to mean that you know something really well. But if I told you, describe the back of your hand to me, I mean, I've got some general idea, but until I look at it, I don't really know what it is exactly. Oh, yeah, there's a mole there, and there's something here, you know. But it's, it's a strange phrase. I think sometimes we can think about the gospel, the good news of God, and that's, we're starting this new series called God's Good News, the, the central message of the Bible. We can say, oh, yeah, I know the gospel like the back of my hand. And we really do know the gospel like the back of our hand. We have maybe a vague idea or a general understanding of what it is. But until we look at it again, we say, oh, yeah, those are the key parts of what the gospel is. That's, that's the central message that God has in his word. It's good just to sometimes get back to what is the core truth of the Bible. What is the message that God wants us to know? This message that, that, that we have been separated from him. And in Jesus, he's bringing us back through repentance and faith so that we can have peace with God. And so we're going to go through a simple outline for four weeks on what to outline what the good news of the gospel is. What is God's good news in Scripture? How do we know what salvation is? And it's just based on, on four words. These four words are God, man. If you don't want to use man, you can use sin. God, man, or sin, Christ, and response. And we're going to take each of these words and, and think on them and how they relate to the core message of the Bible each week. It's, it's based in part on, um, I don't think he originated that, that those four words, um, but Greg Gilbert, who's actually a pastor here in town, has written a little book called What is the Gospel? Um, and I'm, I'm looking at this as preparing messages, but also going elsewhere as well. So don't worry, I'm not just reading chapters of the book while I stand up here. Uh, but if you would like to read a chapter of the book, I bought some extra copies um, a couple used ones and a couple new ones. And if you don't have money for it, that's fine. I'll give it to you, no, no problem. But it's a simple um, explanation of what the gospel is. And we're going to walk through those, those four words. And if you want to read along, feel free to grab one of these, one of these books. Just let me know. There's only four, so you've got to get them fast. Um, but my hope in doing this, in, in, in doing these four um, messages, I kind of have four goals, okay? The first would be to remind us of the beauty of God's good news. To remind us of the beauty of God's good news. The gospel is not just our way into a relationship with God, but rather it's the heartbeat of what Christianity is. It's not something that is only for those who are outside of Christ, but it's something for all of us who are in Christ. I grew up in a church that had an invitation at the end of every service, and I remember they would present the gospel at the end of every message. You knew what I did at that point? Turned off. I'd close my Bible. Okay, service is done. This is for everyone who's not a Christian. But it was for me. I needed to hear it every single week. It's something that we don't graduate from. I saw a quote from a pastor named J.D. Greer, and he said this, The gospel is not just the diving board off which we jump into the pool of Christianity. It is the pool itself. I like that. It's not just what gets us into Christianity, but the gospel is Christianity itself. And so as we speak about the gospel, it's not something that we've ever moved on from, but rather you might think of it as a pool. And it's a pool that we're, that we're 
always exploring and that we're diving deeper into to understand more and more about it every time we hear it proclaimed. So I, I, want us to, I want to remind us of the beauty of God's good news. The second thing I want to do is I want to clarify what are the vital points of God's good news. To clarify what are the vital points of God's good news. So the Bible has many vital, important truths that we should believe. But what are some of those essential points of the good news of salvation? How do we enter into relationship with God? There's discrepancies about some of the things that the Bible teaches, but what are the key main things that we need to believe in order to have a relationship with God? And and also, as you talk to others, what are the truths that you should not budge on? What are the things that you need to be crystal clear on? And that sort of leads into our third reason for doing this series. So we want to be reminded of God's good news. We want to clarify the vital points of God's good news. And I also want to equip us to share God's good news. The message that we have is one that we are supposed to take to others. And so I want to equip us to share God's good news. As we talk about these these four components, I want to give all of us who are Christians fresh confidence as we talk to people that we have a way that, you know, if I, if I have five minutes or 15 minutes, I have something I can walk through and help people understand what the gospel is, a way to engage people with these truths. It's a simple outline, isn't it? God man, Christ, response. It's something that we can all remember. And in difficult situations, when someone's asking hard questions, we can go here. We can say, you know what? I don't know everything. Let me tell you the core of what I believe. We can talk about who God is. We can talk about what sin is. We can talk about what Christ has done and how we are to respond to it. But it's more than just an outline. I'm not going to give you a, a script. I want us to see these things in God's Word. So actually, each week we're going to have a verse that goes along with that thing. So this morning um, is God, and here's a key passage that we'll look at a little bit later from Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I've got a whole stack of these cards for you to take so that we would memorize Scripture as we're talking with someone. We can use that passage. Now, that's long, isn't it? So kids, if you don't think you can memorize that, you probably can. On the back <laughs> is a shorter one. This is Psalm 19:1, and something that children, you can be memorizing God's Word as well. And so we'll have that hopefully each week. Well, we will, Lord willing, have one of these each week for us to memorize God's Word as well because God's Word is more powerful than ours. It's, it's a sword that pierces our souls. So we want to remind ourselves of the beauty of God's Word. We want to clarify the vital points of God's good news. We want to equip ourselves to share God's good news. And then finally, my, my, my fourth point is to introduce you to God's good news. You might be here this morning and you're unsure about your standing with God. Maybe you've never heard the message of the gospel clearly. Maybe you're just checking this whole Christianity thing out. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you're just totally confused in general. I pray that you'll continue to listen over these next four weeks and that God would use these messages that are just the simple truth of God's word and of his good news to us and that he would use these to draw him to yourself so that you would know the truth of the gospel the way that he has come to make peace with with that he has given the, the opportunity he's given us to have peace with him. Um, so that's what why we're doing it. That's the purpose. Um, let's jump right in. And the place to start with is with God. That's the simple title of this sermon. God. Isn't that what every sermon is about? Uh, many people have their own conclusions about about who God is. So. Maybe you were gathering for Thanksgiving. If you would ask your family and your friends who were there, if you you know who who is God, you'd get a pretty wide-ranging response, wouldn't you? Uh, 
In fact, it, that may be an easy way to get into a conversation about the gospel with someone, to just say, how would you describe God? A.W. Tozer says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So maybe after someone has exclaimed, oh my God, or even if they speak positively about God, we could step in and not in a, in a weird way, but just say, you know, when you think about God, what comes into your mind? Who, what is he like to you? I would ask you that even this morning. What comes into your mind when you think about who God is? Of course, there are those who deny God's existence altogether. That's a whole other conversation that would lead us down a different path. But there are many who are at least open to the thought of a supreme being of some kind. They have an opinion about who he is. In fact, those who don't believe in God may have a stronger opinion about who God is than even those who do. For some, God is, a, is, is an angry, somewhat unpredictable warrior. He's ready to crush everyone who would oppose him. To others, he's sort of this loving grandfather, isn't he? He's, he's kind of out of touch, but he's kind, and you know, he's available when you need him. Um, maybe you see him as the cop of the universe. He's making sure that everyone stays in line and that no one has any fun. Um, you might think of him as some sort of genie, that he grants wishes. As long as you go to church and don't kill anyone, he'll listen to you. Or maybe he's just kind of your buddy, right? He's your, he's your co-pilot in life. He's along for the ride. He's a friend. He keeps his opinions to himself. He doesn't judge you. But maybe some combination of all of these things. And in fact, in all of these misunderstandings of God, there are partial truths, aren't there? As we talk to people and they say, here's who I think God is, it wouldn't be wise to just say, you're dead wrong. But rather to say, you know, there's, there's an aspect of God's character that's in what you're saying. We can see how people rightly understand who God is. But if we, if we think about God and we base it solely on our own understanding, on what we conclude with our own sin-stained reasoning, then we will never get the full and the correct picture of, of who God is. And as we talk about who God is, that's often where we go. Is, well, I think that this is who God is. Even as Christians, we can start to formulate opinions about who God is that are based more on our own understanding and on what culture says than on what the Bible says. And that's where we need to go. Because we have a reliable witness in Scripture that says, this is who God is. This is where we need to go to understand rightly who God is. The Bible in the Old and the New Testament is God's revelation of himself in his works and in his words. You know, if you want to know someone, they have to open up to you in some way. Whether it's a conversation or an email or a text message, they have to talk to you. And we would know nothing about God unless he had chosen to reveal himself to us. And he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And he's done it most clearly in the words of the Bible. The stories, the songs, the letters, the prophecies, they all give us this picture of who God is. Ultimately, what is the Bible about? It's about who God is. Sometimes it's, it's hard to see exactly who he is. Sometimes the stories are a little confusing or they look like they contradict each other. But, you know, we shouldn't expect God to be easy for our minds to grasp, right? But even in those difficulties, that when we turn to God's word, there are some core truths about God that are crystal clear, right? There's things that we know for sure that the Bible is teaching. They are undeniable. We find the first truth, if we think about God and as we talk to others and we think about the core things that we need to understand to understand God's good news, the first thing that we need to understand about who God is is the first thing that's said in the Bible, and it's this, that God is the creator. God is the creator. So in thinking about God, this is where we begin. God is the creator of all things. 
It's one of the great questions of the world, isn't it? This question of origins. Where, where did all of this come from? Where did, where did I come from? Nehemiah 9.6 says this. It says it very clearly. It says, You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. You open your Bible, if you opened it to Genesis 1, you'd see that, that God made everything, and he made it out of nothing. He, he didn't form the earth from some sort of pre-existing substance. If you read other creation myths, that's, that's what God does. He takes something, the, the, the body of a, a God that has died, or some other thing that's, that exists already, and he forms it and makes the world. But our God made the world out of nothing. Psalm 33.6 says this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So God has made all things by the word of his mouth. In the poetic words of Genesis 1, he, he sings the world, as it were, into existence. And he pronounces it all good. And all of these good things that God has made, all the things that, that surround us, even apart from God's word, they are meant to declare who God is. So from the magnificent blue whale to the microscopic bacteria to the things that we see and the things that we have never seen, it all tells us about who God is. So we can all, this is the, that general revelation that God has given to all people, even just looking at the beautiful sky around us, it declares who God is. So as we listen to this song of creation, we come to know more about the author of the lyrics and of the melody. You consider the masterpiece and you Get a picture for who the artist is that has made all of these things. That's Psalm 19, 1, isn't it? The heavens are doing what? Declaring the glory of God. And the sky above is proclaiming his handiwork. It's saying something about who God is, pouring out words day and night. Romans 1 tells us that the visible creation has made the invisible God known. And so creation is telling us who God is. But it's not just the things that we normally associate with nature. So if I say nature, you're thinking about certain things, trees and mountains and, and hills. But we ourselves are those who have been created in the image of God with consciences, with, with creativity, and we are telling who God is. So as we think about God as the creator, Scripture is so clear about that. But God is not just the creator. God is our creator. I think that's the next thing we need to make sure people understand and that we understand. God is the creator, but God is also our creator. God is my creator. That's not, that's not a, a simple distinction, a small distinction, but it has major bearing on our lives. God is your creator. God is my creator. He creates us in his image, Genesis 1. Genesis 1 says that it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, 27, that we are created to reflect who God is. David gives praise to God in Psalm 139, verse 14. And what does he say? I praise you, God, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. We reflect the beauty of God. There are people who see the world as a result of sort of random chance. And so if the world is a part of a, a product of random chance, then so am I. And if that's true, then I exist with no real purpose, if that's what I believe about the world. Some people have been told that. Maybe you've been told that through the words or actions of 
friends or, or parents, you're told you have no value. You're told that you were a mistake or that you are a failure. But this truth that God is our creator means that, that I am created with purpose. God's not just the creator of everything in general. He is my creator. And I've been, I have a purpose in this world. And my purpose is determined by the one who made me. And God made me. The reason that we think about God as creator is because that role means that he has authority in this world. He has made this world and he has the right to say what is right and wrong. He has the right to tell us how we are to live and what the plan of salvation is. I remember as a kid saying this phrase, my house, my rules. You ever say that? You'd usually use that phrase to somehow get your way, you know. The thought was, you're in my yard, you're in my driveway, you're in my room. And so what I say goes, I have the authority to tell you what the rules are in this place. Of course, you know. I had no real authority. My parents could say, my house, my rules, <laughs> because it was their house. It was their food. It was their furniture. It was their everything, and I had to live by their rules or face the consequences. And since I enjoyed eating, especially as an adolescent, and I liked to sleep, especially as an adolescent, uh, I listened to them. I did what they said. In, in a similar way, God has the authority to say, I made this world. I made this, I made everything in it, and I made you. And therefore... I have the right to say what is right and wrong. I have the right to tell you how to live and what is right. My world, my rules. <laughs> that could be miserable. It could be terrible. Especially if God is that angry cop that's ready to crush all your fun or strike you with lightning if you do something wrong. But we're going to see in a little bit that God is not that, but that God is good. He is loving. But, but before we move on to that, I want to get to this idea of what's vital. I want to say that as we speak to others about who God is, that we need to emphasize the who of creation long before we talk about the how. In other words, beyond saying that God is the ultimate source behind everything and therefore has authority over all things, I think it's foolish sometimes that we get into debates about how God has done it, about whether or not Genesis 1 is literal days or not, about whether or not evolution is a possibility. Evolution can certainly be founded on atheistic principles. And people who say there is no God, evolution is God. Science is God. That's a whole different conversation. But there are Christians who believe that God used the process of evolution to bring about this world. And they believe the gospel. Now, the reason I say that is because if we, if we make the how of creation, how God did it, the central point, we may totally miss the opportunity to have a deep conversation with someone about God's authority as creator. So the point isn't to say, here's how God did it, but rather, will you recognize that God is the one who did it? That he is the one who has made this world, and that therefore he has authority. I, I say that we can talk about it more, but I, I, I say that because... What's vital? What's core? It's the fact that God is the creator. And if we get distracted into debates that focus less on the who and more on the how, we may miss opportunities to help people understand who God is. You may want to talk to me about that afterwards, and I'm happy to. Uh, this idea of God as the creator though, of all things, it's something that's at the core of his character. It's wrapped, it's wrapped up even in one of the key revelations of God in Exodus 3. So, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, 
and, and says he's going to deliver the children of Israel. And Moses says, who should I say sent me? And what does God say? Tell them I am sent you. God takes this name, I am that I am. He communicates that he has no beginning and no end. Something that's been blowing my kids' minds lately, trying to think about how does something have no beginning. But no beginning, no end, and that all life flows from him. He is the source and the giver of life. And that was core to Israel's understanding of who God was. And it continues to guide all of us who truly believe in God. Then later in Exodus, though, God comes to Moses. And we've been studying this on Sunday mornings in Sunday school. He comes in another clear way and he reveals himself in words that continue to be repeated throughout Scripture because they're so core to who God is. And those are in Exodus 34. If you haven't turned anywhere yet, you should go to Exodus 34. If you don't have a Bible, you can just look at the front of your bulletin because the key verses are right there. But we'll look at them in context here in Exodus chapter 34. What has happened at this point is this is right after the golden calf. So the people have forsaken God and started to worship this golden calf. He says he's going to leave them. Moses intercedes and says, no, God, don't. And then he asks God to show him his glory. Moses says to God, show me your glory. Tell me who you are. And so we find in, in Exodus 34, let's look at, um, at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, with Moses there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. If I was trying to find out who you are, I could interview people who know you. And I could ask them, you know, tell me who so-and-so is, who who you are in a couple of sentences. And they could tell me different things about you. But other than God, who knows me better than me? So if you want to know who I am, you can come to me and say, describe yourself in two sentences for me. And I could do that. If I was honest, you'd know a little bit more about who I am. And so too, here God comes and he says, you want to know who I am, Moses? You've asked me to tell you who I am. Let me tell you who I am. I'll give you the core of who I am in just a couple of sentences. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. And if we look especially at verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7, we had to summarize those verses. This is what we'd say. So we said God is the creator. God is our creator. God is good. That's what he's saying here. God is good. I find it amazing that when God chooses to reveal himself, when he wants to speak about who he is, this is how he starts. These are the words he uses. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Those who view God as some sort of maniacal warrior, or as some sort of cop that wants to crush us, have not seen this picture of who God is. This is how he reveals himself. Some people, we take God's love for granted sometimes. 
because throughout history, the concept of the gods or of God were, were never very attractive, you know. They were coarse, they were crass beings who acted in uncontrollable anger. They lashed out at puny human beings for no good reason. You could try to appease them with sacrifices, but you never knew what was going to happen because they were temp- temperamental, they were so volatile. But when God speaks of himself, the first thing that he speaks about is his goodness. Even in his creation, in his authority over us, he has, he, he's filled with mercy and, and with with grace. This is coming on the heels, remember, of God's people rejecting him in a profound way. And now he says that he's slow to anger, that he's full of patience. This is the true God. This is the God that we need to hold up in the world. Did you see the cover of the New York Daily News after the shooting in California? The headline? It read this. God isn't fixing this. Big, bold letters. And surrounded by that headline, God isn't fixing this. It had, it had little quotes of people who said that they were praying for the victims in San Bernardino. It was meant to spark some sort of conversation or debate about, about gun control, to motivate politicians to act. And I don't presume to know God's position on gun control. Uh, but what I do know, I do know this. Ezekiel 33.11 says that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, or for, of anyone for that matter. And that he is patient with us because he wants everyone to come to repentance. People will bring up these things as we talk to them about who God is. Our discussion about sin next week is going to have a lot to say about this issue. The fact that we've rejected God's rightful rule. But we can say this about God. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. His mercy is over all. You know, the fact that you have breath today is God's mercy. The fact that any of us are alive is a gift of his grace. We've made a mess of God's world. And we see that in all of these events that happen. We have made a mess of his good world. And death was never supposed to be a part of it. But God continues to show mercy. Just as the Israelites rejected him, and then he comes and says, I'm a God of mercy. He's not willing that anyone would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. Jesus takes natural disaster and the evil of human beings in Luke 13, and he turns it not into a question about about, um, God's goodness or about the legitimacy of prayer, but he says, what if it was you? Do you know the goodness of God in salvation, his mercy, his grace? You know, the the character of God is what what gives us security in the midst of, of, of difficulty, in the midst of tragedy. Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Trusting God Even When it, When Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. And he wrote it out of some pain that he was experiencing because of his wife's sickness and later death. And he gives three core truths about who God is that we hold on to. And I, I love these and I maybe have said them to you at some point. But but this idea that when something terrible happens, we can say, you know, I don't know why that happened. I don't know why all these shootings happened. I don't understand. But here's what I know about God. Here's what I know for sure is crystal clear in his word. Number one, he is good. God is good. He is loving. He has made that so clear to us. God is good. Second, God is wise. I don't understand this, but God's wisdom surpasses any of mine. and He he knows what is going on. God is wise. And third, God is sovereign. He is in control even if it looks like he isn't. We would be tempted to look at these things and say, 
that was out of God's control. But that would be the wrong thing to conclude, but rather say God is in control. Things are fuzzy, but his character on those things is clear. He's the creator. He's our creator. He's good. But then the final truth, God is holy and righteous. God is holy and righteous. If we leave the description of Exodus 34 at verse 6 and the first part of verse 7, and we don't read, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation, if we do that, we do a great injustice to the character of God. And all throughout our world, we see people that want to take verse 6 and verse 7a and say, that's who God is. And they miss this part that he will by no means clear the guilty, that he is holy and that he is righteous. Is God merciful and gracious? A thousand times, yes. Does he turn a blind eye to sin? Never. Never. Isaiah 6, another key revelation of God that we sang this morning, is that the angels say God is holy, holy, holy. He is separate. He is unable to abide sin. Psalm 89.14 says of God, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. If we take that out of his character, he does not rule anymore. He has no throne. Righteousness and justice must be there. And deep down, you want God to be righteous and just. This is what, in this book that uh, I'm offering up to you, uh, Greg Gilbert says this about the justice and the righteousness of God and our desire for it. Says it's always interesting to watch what happens when people who insist that God would never judge them come face to face with undeniable evil. Confronted with some truly horrific evil, then they want God, they want a God of justice, and they want Him now. They want God to overlook their own sin, but not the terrorists. Forgive me, they say, but don't you dare forgive Him. You see, nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. Isn't that true? We want God to deal with evil. Just don't deal with mine. But God never sweeps sin under the rug. Maybe you did that as a child when you were supposed to clean up. You just sort of swept it under the rug. God always deals with the dirt in this world. And it's the righteousness of God and the reality of who we are that leads us into our discussion of what sin is. But know this, God will by no means clear the guilty. He will deal with with every sin in the world. You know, if I was sitting by someone right now and they wanted to understand the, the truth of God's good news, this is where I'd start. I'd start with God. Maybe you can imagine that conversation. We'll try to do this each week. So imagine this conversation. We sit down and, and we start having a conversation and I say, well, what do you think about who God is? And they describe who he is. And then I'd probably say something like, well, you know, I've got some thoughts about God as well, but what's really important is what the Bible says about who God is. And what I know from the Bible, what it teaches, it says that God is the creator, that God has made everything that we see. There's this verse, Psalm 19.1. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God, that, that everything that we see is telling about how great God is, that, that this world is, is like a, a masterpiece painted by an artist, and it's telling us about God, that he's the creator. And he's not just the creator of all these things, but he's, he's our creator. He created you. He created, he created me. And he made us in his image. He made us for his glory. He made us to, to live in a way that would please him. 
And so since he made us and he made the world, he has authority. He can say what's right and, and what's wrong. And that could be terribly bad if God was mean. But what I also know about God is that he's good, that he's, that he's merciful. Let me tell you a verse I memorized. Exodus 34 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. God is, God is good. This is how he describes himself. He's loving and he's merciful. He's good. He's seeking our ultimate joy and it can only be found in him. But not only is God good, but, but God is holy and righteous. The rest of that verse says that, that he will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God is, is holy and, and righteous and he, he must deal with sin because that's at the core of, of who he is. The conversation shouldn't end there for sure. We get into talking about how we have sin because God is holy and righteous. He needs to deal with our sin. And we'll talk about that next week. But I don't want to leave a cliffhanger on the gospel ever, right? The wonderful thing is that we have before us a display of what God's good news is in the Lord's table. A preview of the things that we're going to talk about. We're reminded that the God who who made the world and all that is in it humbled himself. He humbled himself to the point of becoming a human being. To becoming Jesus. Jesus, who made the world, becomes a part of his world. He comes to his own. And his own reject him. He's despised. He's rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, is what Isaiah tells us. And men hated him so much that, that because of the truth that he spoke about their sin and about the fact that he was the Messiah, that they crucified him. They killed him. But at the cross, that's where we see the truths of Exodus 36 or 34, 6 to 7 come together. We see the beauty of God's goodness, his mercy, and his love and the justice of God, the holiness and the righteousness of God come together. God in his love and his mercy willingly takes our sin upon himself. Not because he had ever sinned, because he never had. But he becomes sin for us so that we might know salvation. And on the cross, as Jesus is crucified, he's not crucified for his sin, but for your sin and for my sin. And the righteousness and the holiness of God and the wrath of God is poured out on God. He becomes the substitute for us. And in that, he doesn't violate any part of his character. He shows forth his goodness and his mercy, but he shows forth his justice and his righteousness. And therefore, he can be just and the justifier. He can make salvation possible. And Jesus rises from the grave and shows that God has accepted his sacrifice and he's purchased new life for everyone who will turn from sin and trust in the work of Christ for salvation cross violates no part of God's core character or any part of his character. It doesn't violate his goodness or his mercy, his righteousness or his holiness. Salvation comes and it makes forgiveness of sins possible for everyone who would believe. And so as we come and we take the bread and the cup, we don't take it to earn our salvation, but rather to proclaim this morning that Jesus is our only hope of salvation, that Christ alone can give us life and that he has done it through his broken body and through his shed blood. We take it and saying, Jesus, you are the bread of life. Jesus, your blood washes away my sin and brings me forgiveness.